This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 407th episode, we are back from our parental leave. Yes. And very excited, though, if we sound a little bit tired, it's because it took us over an hour to get our baby to sleep so we could record this episode. (laughs) Yes, and it's almost midnight because that is the time when we can sit down for an hour and talk about dinosaurs. It's like they say, when the kids are asleep, the parents talk about dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a saying. (laughs) So this week we have a ton of dinosaur news to catch up on. Well, it's going to take us multiple weeks. That's true. We tweeted about it. I think at the time that we posted, there were 65 news items to catch up on. But since then, there's been like five more, something like 15 new dinosaurs discovered over the summer, which is amazing. And that means we have a lot to talk about. Yes. But this week we're going to do two new dinosaurs and a whole ton of other news. And then we'll be, you know, sort of spreading out the new dinosaurs because those are the most in-depth things to talk about over the next few weeks. And Mm -hmm. then also sprinkling in a bunch of other news from over the summer. And then, as always, we have a dinosaur of the day. And this week it is Magnosaurus. And Sabrina has a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons. And this week... I have one new patron to thank. I should have a lot more because a lot of people joined while we were away. Thank you for that. Yes. I'll definitely get to all those shout outs in the next two weeks. I sent out messages to double check everybody's shout out names. I just want to give a few days at least to make sure that everybody has a chance to correct me if I'm giving the wrong shout out name. So if you are one of the people that joined over the summer, make sure to check on that and correct me if you want a different shout out name than the one I try. (laughs) So this week, our one new patron that we're thanking is McManasaurus, who hails from the South Island of New Zealand, which is super awesome. Thank you very much for joining. And then rounding out our shout outs, we've got Joey, Gabe, Jeremy Stevens, Shelby, Richard, Jackson Crawford, Arlosaurus, Florida Fossil Hunter, and Sophie. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody who has been with us for a while and who joined over the summer. Your support really means a lot. Yes. And we got tons of nice messages while we were away. And that was awesome, too. Yes. Helped us get through some of the sleepless nights. Oh, man. (laughs) There have been some. (laughs) Jumping into the news. I got dibs on the news today. It's a new sauropod, which might not surprise you. Garrett or anyone who listens to the show that I chose to (laughs) 
start with a sauropod. Of the 15 new dinosaurs? Yeah. I'm guessing at least five of them are sauropods, though. Or sauropodomorphs. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's exactly five, but there are a number of them. So this one is Periasaurus lapaz. It's a new sauropod discovered in Colombia. The paper was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology by Aldo Rincon and others. And what's really exciting about it is it's the northernmost sauropod found in South America so far. Yeah, we don't hear a lot about dinosaurs in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually we talk about, what, Argentina, Chile? Mm-hmm. Brazil. Brazil, yeah. And most of the ones in Brazil come from southern Brazil. There are some that are farther north, but I guess not as far north as Colombia. Mm-hmm. At least sauropods. Right. So this one, Periosaurus, it probably looked like other sauropods. You know, it had the long neck and the tail and the columnar legs. It was probably medium-sized. It's named from just one vertebra. It's specifically an anterior to middle dorsal vertebra, so near the top. Well, that yeah, so that's the back. So yeah. that would be towards like the shoulders, basically, if it's anterior, that's towards the front. Yeah, they think it's the fifth vertebra. And that vertebra is about 21 to 22 inches or 55 centimeters tall and 17 to 18 inches or 45 centimeters wide. It's a big vertebra. Yeah. It's from about 175 million years ago. It was found in the La Quinta Formation in Cesar of Colombia. And there's two other dinosaurs from that formation, but they were found on the Venezuela side. There's La Quintasora, which is an Ornithischian, so it's got the long tail, walked on two legs, and Tachiraptor, which is a small theropod that walked on two legs. So it's kind of cool you think about it. They all came from the same formation, but, you know, the way our humans have made countries, they come from two different countries. Yeah. <laughs> so specifically, in addition to being in the La Quinta Formation, it was found in northeastern Colombia in Serrania del Paria. So the genus name, Pariasaurus, comes from Serrania del Paria, as well as part of the Cordillera, which is a chain of mountain ranges that's shared by Colombia and Venezuela. And the species name refers to the nearby town La Paz and the 2016 Acuerdos de Paz, a peace agreement. There's been a conflict since 1964 in that area between Colombian military forces, so it wasn't safe to do research there until these 2016 peace agreements. Yeah, so they named a dinosaur after it. Yeah. That's cool. That is. Yeah, and the fossils, they were found back in 1943 by the Tropical Oil Company while they were doing some geological mapping. And they were first described in 1955, but it was originally thought to be just an indeterminate sauropod. And the fossil, when it was first found, it was broken into two sections, but they said there was no fit between the two sections. Couldn't snap them together. But then... Jeff Wilson Mantillo, who's one of the authors of the paper, he studied this fossil as a grad student in 1997, and this fossil was reprepared in 2020. They removed different glues and plasters and replaced it with new materials. And the vertebra is in three pieces. Two of those pieces have that snap fit, so they go together really well. The third piece doesn't quite fit, but they said after repreparing, they didn't find any missing material between the pieces. And you can actually see all this online because the fossil, they made a 3D model of it on the University of Michigan online repository of fossils. Cool. Yeah. So it all fits together now or that third piece still doesn't fit? The third piece doesn't fit, but there's nothing really in between it. 
So the way you, when you look on it online, you can see the two pieces that are snapped together and then the third piece that's a little bit off to the side. Oh, okay. Yeah. So by nothing in between it, you mean that there's nothing overlapping between them? So it could be from the same vertebra? No, it is. It's all this. It's all one vertebra. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's just pieces of a vertebra. Of a very large vertebra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So since 2016, with these peace agreements, the team has been working on finding the exact location where this fossil was found, because again, it was found in the 1940s, and then included superimposing a satellite image of the region on a hand-drawn map from 1955. So all kinds of techniques to figure out the exact location. This vertebra has a distinct pattern of bony struts, and that's why they're saying this is a new type of sauropod. It's not as pneumatic. So the air sacs and the bones aren't as developed as, say, in later sauropods. And it was found to be, quote, one quarter to one half as effective at bone weight savings, end quote, compared to neosauropods. Oh, so it's, it's not as efficient. Fancy. Yeah, <laughs> at, at holding all that weight. So Perihasaurus lived in a tropical area with low slopes, a river, and a forest. And the fact that we know it existed. It helped show that eusauropods were broadly distributed during the early to middle Jurassic. And like I mentioned, there's a 3D model of the fossil that you can see online. And the fossil itself is stored at the University of California Museum of Paleontology in Berkeley in California. Too bad they don't really show any of their fossils. <laughs> uh, they do to some extent. But you can see it online. Yeah. It's a 3D model. That's good. And next up, I've got another dinosaur, which was described based on a vertebra. <laughs> I guess we're kicking it off with two really huge finds, <laughs> an individual vertebra each. <laughs> <laughs> this one was published in Royal Society Open Science and written by Bilal Salem and others. There's also a really good write-up on Ohio University News since a couple of the authors work there, but there wasn't a byline, so mm -hmm. I don't know who to credit. But it was a really good write-up, so whoever did that did a good job. So the lead author and two of the co-authors on this paper are associated with the Mansoor University Vertebrate Paleontology Center, also known as MUVP, which opened in 2010. Mm. And in 2018, researchers from the university named Mansourosaurus, mm -hmm. you can see where they got that name, the founding director of MUVP was the lead author on Mansurosaurus, the one that described Mansurosaurus, and one of the co-authors on this paper. Obviously, it's very early days for the program there. Sure. <laughs> it opened in 2010. 12 years ago. Yeah, I remember at one of the SVPs, I think it was the first time someone came from there or something. There was something about Mansura hmm. University really like picking up steam just in the last few years, which is awesome. Good memory. Hopefully, we'll see a lot more from them in the future. I've been hoping. I mean, there aren't a ton of new paleontology universities in Africa, and they're really significant because there's so many good sites to go explore there mm -hmm. and having feet on the ground in those areas and researchers from those places with some expertise and, you know, a good working knowledge of the environment and the language and all that kind of stuff makes a huge difference. So... There is a new theropod from the Baharia Oasis. It's about a six-hour drive southwest from MUVP, mostly straight into the Sahara Desert. A lot of great fossils are there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the desert is a pretty good place to get fossils because you don't have any of those pesky plants covering things up. Although, pesky plants. <laughs> 
I say pesky plants, but the Bajaria Oasis is a serious oasis in the desert. So if you look at satellite photos of the area, you see these huge fields of trees. Mm -hmm. And I looked up, I was like, what are all these trees? Because they all look the same. It looks like the same tree over and over and over again, all over the place Mm -hmm. in these rows. And I was like, what are these things? I think they're date palms. Oh, Which are, I guess, we just found out recently, dates grow on palm trees, a specific type of palm tree. And the biggest exporter of dates turns out to be Egypt, probably because of places like this that just have huge fields of these date palms. I bet it's a welcome (laughs) relief in the desert, too. Yeah, it looks really cool. Oases in the desert are such a cool thing. It's surrounded by hundreds of kilometers of just, you know, barren desert, just nothing but sand. So, yeah. That's, I can't even imagine how exciting it would be to reach one of these oases, especially in older times where traveling would take days. But Bahari Oasis in Egypt is home to one of the coolest dinosaur-containing formations on Earth. Technically, it's called the Bahari Formation. We usually just call it the Bahari Oasis because mm-hmm. everybody knows what you're talking about. There's only the one dinosaur formation there. So, yeah. With you some know big name is. dinosaurs that come from there. Yeah, for sure. Just some of the carnivores which are known from the Bajario Oasis are several crocodiliforms, a whole bunch of sharks, some huge fish, including a massive coelacanth that was over five meters or 16 feet long. And coelacanths are really bulky fish, too, yeah. so it's like as tall as a person, basically. There's also a plesiosaur, a sea turtle, and I, I say it's a carnivore, but maybe that one was an omnivore, and up to four of the largest theropods of all time. So you've got... Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus. Do you want to guess the other three? Well, <laughs> Carcharodontosaurus. Uh-huh. But I'm blanking on... Oh, wait. Mm, Baryonyx? Nope. No, no, no. That's elsewhere. Yeah, you're right. That is a very different part of the world. <laughs> okay, I'm blanking on the other two. So the other two are much less well-known. There's Bahariasaurus. Makes you know, sense. Obvious name. And Sigilmosaurus. Oh, I should have known that one because of Spinosaurus. Yeah. So Sigilmosaurus as a name is still debated. So a lot of people would say oh, that's the same thing as Spinosaurus. It might be the same animal that Ernst Stromer called Spinosaurus B. But either way, it's a huge Spinosaurid from, you know, the skull that we have of it or had. <laughs> Bahariosaurus also was destroyed during World War II, just like all of Stromer's dinosaur finds from the Bajaria formation, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. It could have been just about any theropod, possibly even a tyrannosauroid, which would be really interesting. Although I'm a little bit skeptical about that because from what we know about tyrannosauroids now, we think that they were pretty small at this point in time because this formation's from about 98 million years ago, somewhere in that like 95 to 100 usually is where people put it. And if there was a huge tyrannosauroid there, that would be quite the impressive thing to find. But no matter what, there are a lot of huge carnivores there, both in the water and on the land. And that led to what is known as Stromer's Riddle. Basically, how can all of these large carnivores live together? Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about this in episode 300. Yeah, I knew I couldn't remember when how recent it was that we went through that. So I guess, I guess it's, it's been a couple been of years. A while, yeah. <laughs> So one popular answer to Stromer's riddle is that they filled different ecological niches. That's pretty much the only answer I've heard, actually. For example, Spinosaurus might have eaten fish, and Carcharodontosaurus might have eaten terrestrial prey, and then maybe Bahariosaurus, you know, was eating a different terrestrial prey, things like that. 
As a side note, according to this paper, even though Stromer noted the seeming imbalance between predators and herbivores, it wasn't coined Stromer's riddle until much more recently. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's not like a riddle he posed to the community. No. He's just like, this is weird. And then people later were like, oh, Stromer's riddle. Attributed it to him. <laughs> I mean, he kind of deserves a credit because he found all this stuff there and yeah. named half these dinosaurs and Came everything. Came up with the question. Yeah, he did. Now, obviously, we have another terrestrial predator from the area. It doesn't have an official name, but the title of the paper starts, quote, first definitive record of a Bellosauridae from the cretaceous Baharia formation. All right. Now we got a Bellosaurus in the mix. <laughs> yeah. And I had to double check. I was like, none of the other ones we know, because we know so many from there are Bellosaurids, and they aren't. We've got Carcharodontosaurs. We've got Spinosaurus, obviously, and then a couple other theropods. But it's really not too surprising that there would be an Bellosaurid in that area. Yeah. Add it to the riddle. Well, I mean, just because of what we know about abelosaurids. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> so usually when I'm thinking about abelosaurids, I'm thinking about South America first. That's where the most famous abelosaurid is, which is Carnotaurus. But they've also been found in India, Europe, and Africa, including elsewhere even in Egypt. So yeah, it's not too surprising. But it is a little bit older than a lot of these other, at least ones in Egypt. So yeah, now we've got another family of large carnivorous dinosaurs for Stromer's riddle. And, you know, you can really explain that ecological niche partitioning when you're looking at, say, a Spinosaurus and a Carcharodontosaurus. Mm -hmm. But then when you've got Bahariosaurus and another Abelosaurid coming into the mix, yeah. they're starting to overlap again. <laughs> it's becoming a little more riddly. As the lead author, Salem, put it, quote, during the mid-Cretaceous, the Baharia oasis would have been one of the most terrifying places on the planet. Well, yeah, you've, you're surrounded by predators. Yes, and a lot of them with mouths that could easily fit around a person's torso. Like you were listing before, too. It's not just dinosaur predators. It's yeah. all kinds of animals yeah. that were predators. Yeah, crocodiliforms. And sharks. Sharks. <laughs> Huge coelacanths. I don't even know what they were up to. And they all overlap with the types of food that they eat. So yeah, you wouldn't be safe. Yeah, definitely <laughs> not. The new fossil was found in 2016. It was surface collected, meaning they basically found it sticking up out of the ground. Oh, That's nice. how a lot of them go. It's presumably the 477th fossil found at MUVP because it's called MUVP 477. Wow. And that's basically all we can call it because they didn't name a genus right. based on the one vertebra. That means that in six years, they collected at least 477 fossils. Yeah, I think so. And now it's been, what, six more years? Yep. Think of how many fossils they've got now. <laughs> That's true. Sometimes a specimen is less significant than like a, a vertebra, which tells you there's a new dinosaur in an area. Sometimes there's like eight, which are all just pieces of a turtle carapace or something. Mm. But yeah. This new vertebra is about 17 centimeters tall and about 20 centimeters wide. That's including the things sticking off of it. Quite a bit smaller than the sauropod. That's like this similar to the number of inches <laughs> the sauropod was, so maybe mm -hmm. a third of the size of the sauropod you were talking about. Although it's missing a little bit on one of the sides, so it should be slightly wider than that. In our weird units, that's 6.7 inches tall by 7.9 inches wide, which is still very large for a vertebra. Yeah. The centrum alone is a little bit bigger than a softball. It's the best comparison I could come up with, hmm. which is really big for a centrum. You know, that's the part where the 
vertebrae meet. Right. And they have the little I mean, cushioning would, in between them. That would them. sound impressive, except I talked about the sauropod one <laughs> right before you, so. Yes. This one is probably a neck vertebra, though. So back vertebra are usually bigger. True. So this is probably the 10th cervical vertebra, which means 10 back from the head, probably getting near the shoulder. MUVP 477 is in really good condition and nearly complete, so it's an excellent specimen for comparing to other dinosaurs. The vertebra has a lot in common with Majungasaurus from Madagascar, Carnotaurus from Argentina, and Via Venator from Argentina. It's larger than the same vertebra is in Majungasaurus, but smaller than that vertebra would be in Carnotaurus. So size-wise, you'd think, okay, it's probably a little bit bigger than a Majungasaurus, but a little bit smaller than a Carnotaurus. Mm -hmm. Size estimates for vertebrae aren't exactly the most reliable way to figure out how big or heavy a dinosaur right. is. Usually you want the femur. Yeah. And I was expecting to have to do the math on my own, the like shady back of an envelope sort of math. But the authors actually took a crack at it in the paper, which I enjoyed. So depending on which dimensions of the vertebra you use, you end up with it being somewhere between about 5.3 and 6.3 meters or 17 to 21 feet. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, you know, like if you go by height of the vertebra, it might look bigger than if you go by width just because it's different proportions from the other dinosaurs that they're comparing it to. Decent size. Yeah, it is, it is pretty big. It's considered medium size for an abelosaurid, given that dinosaurs are usually about a third as tall as they are long, or at least theropods. If you take that 21-ish feet, that would be about seven feet tall. And then on the lower end, maybe it's more like six feet. So probably taller than most people. And my estimation based on similar animals is that it probably weighed roughly one ton. So yeah. Definitely another formidable animal, although not at all in the same scale as Spinosaurus or Carcharodontosaurus. Those are in a league of their own, really. But like you said, they're all living together. So yeah. just avoid that area if you were living back then. That's true. And since it's a vertebra too, we don't know if it was a juvenile. So it might have gotten bigger. They obviously didn't slice into it to do histology. I don't even know if it would work on this to see if it was still growing or anything. So yeah. We don't really know that for sure. The new abelosaurid is about 30 million years older than Carnotaurus and Majungasaurus and about 15 million years older than Via Venator. So it is quite a bit farther back in the fossil record. It's basically right in the middle of the Cretaceous, whereas those are much closer to the end of the Cretaceous. If they find more fossils, maybe it'll end up being some really weird dinosaur. Oh, you mean like Dinochirus or something where you find like weird limbs and things? I was just thinking since there's such a big gap between it and these other abelosaurs. Oh, yeah. There are other abelosaurids that are around that time, though. These are just the ones that it's most closely related to. Mm. So it's sort of a justification that it's probably not one of those genera. So they didn't just assign it and say like, okay, well, it looks a lot like a Carcharodontosaurus mixed with a Majungasaurus and it's around the same time as one of them. So we'll assign it to that one. But since it's so far apart in time, it's probably not any of those genera. And it's also unlikely to be previously described as a different genera because it has this mosaic of features from other abelosaurids. There are a couple of abelosaurids from around that time, but obviously not from that formation. 
Unfortunately, we don't have neck bones to compare to those abelosaurids. So one example is Rugops. It's about the same age as the new unidentified abelosaurid. It might be slightly younger, but there's some fuzzy error bars on both of the formations. So they could be at the same time. And that's also in Africa, although pretty far away because that's down in Niger. So mm-hmm. it's not even in the Chemchem beds, which seem to have some overlap. There's also a really nice piece of paleo art with this article. It includes three large theropods, specifically Spinosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, and they took a crack at drawing the new unidentified abelosaurid with only the vertebra mm-hmm. to base it on. And then way in the background, they stuck Bahariosaurus in there. When I looked at the picture at first and I was looking at the description of it, it said that there was a bar Bahariosaurus in there. I was like, where is this animal? It's like so tiny in the background. You can barely see it there. Well, in real life, they wouldn't have all been hanging out together. Yeah, that's true. Good point. It's sort of over actually by the sauropods, which I didn't mention before, but Paralatitan, specifically the Titanosaur, mm-hmm. is known from that formation. That's where it was discovered, but it wasn't discovered until 2001. So that might help answer a little bit of Stromer's riddle because the big problem was that there were so many more carnivores than herbivores. And now right. we know of at least one big herbivore that was there. But the drawing of the new unidentified abelosaurid, I should mention, looks sort of like abelosaurus, or you could think of like Carnotaurus without the horns. It's basically how they drew it. It's got those weird, super tiny arms with oh, those yeah. f- lots of fingers. Those are great. <laughs> yeah. And like a pretty tall top to bottom, but short front to back head and, you know, fairly narrow like most dinosaurs. So, yeah, pretty cool looking dinosaur. The authors also mentioned there are a lot of similarities between the Chemchem beds in Morocco and the Baharia formation. One big difference, though, is that the Baharia formation tends to have more complete fossils. Oh, interesting. So there's some hope that with these increased expeditions in Egypt, we might get a more complete specimen. Ooh, more Spinosaurus fossils. Yeah, could be. Or it could get a more complete version of this unidentified abelosaurid. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that they didn't name a new dinosaur genus based on a single vertebra. I know you had your... (laughs) Your sauropod that was named based on a single vertebra. But in general, those things are really ripe for getting synonymized later. Or later on playing the, should this new dinosaur be the holotype? Because we named a holotype based on a single vertebra. And now we found this other thing, which is clearly way better. Better a vertebra than teeth. That's true. Or a tooth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a low bar. (laughs) (laughs) I still enjoy that there's a new sauropod out there. Yeah. I mean, the, it still counts. It's like, this is still a new abelosaurid. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have a genus name because it's not a big enough find to really warrant that. Mm. It's too hard to compare to other things. They tried doing one of those comparisons where they shove it in a computer with all the data about the measurements mm-hmm. and where it comes out. And one of them just stuck it in this polytomy with like 20 other dinosaurs. It's like all of the abelosaurids came out together because it just doesn't have enough features oh. to distinguish it. I think that was the difference with the sauropod paper. They they did a similar thing, but it was the specific patterns that it had. That's what made it stand out enough. Yeah. I mean, this had some unique features too in the, the patterns of it, but I always support researchers who want to not name new animals based on a single bone. 
<laughs> yeah, I think we've established you're a lumper. No, I'm just more conservative on the not naming new dinosaurs. Mm. That's different than lumping. Okay. <laughs> but I am also a lumper for sure. <laughs> and we have a ton more news to get to. But first, let's take a quick sponsor break. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We've got a whole bunch of news to get into. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, there are over 65 news items to get through <laughs> and something like 15 of them were new dinosaur discoveries. So, of course, there's other stuff, too, to talk about. And I'll start with another sauropod story. <laughs> <laughs> this one uh, got a lot of traction online. It was a sauropod that was found in a backyard in Portugal. That's exciting. I know. Can you imagine if we just, you know, were digging up our backyard and we found some amazing fossil? That'd be cool. It's unlikely, but it would be cool. We'd have to dig pretty deep You'd in have, our backyard. Yeah, it, it <laughs> most likely wouldn't be a dinosaur fossil, but it could still be something cool. Yeah. Anyway, one can dream. <laughs> this sauropod, it's one of the biggest skeletons found in Europe. They think it's probably a brachiosaurid. These fossil fragments, they were first found back in 2017 when the owner was digging up his garden and he reached out to paleontologists, which is a good move to do. They found part of a rib that's about three meters long and oh, some man. vertebrae. Yeah. So this brachiosaurid or probable brachiosaurid, 
It's about 150 million years old, and it's estimated to be 39 feet or 12 meters tall and 82 feet or 25 meters long. Yeah, if the rib alone is three meters long, you figure there's got to be a fair amount of space below the rib (laughs) to the ground. (laughs) It's a big dinosaur. Yeah. Wonder how big his garden is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the only thing I've ever found digging in our yard is like broken glass and rusty nails. Oh. Yeah. That's not fun. No. (laughs) Found some termites one time too. (laughs) Yeah, that's also not great. (laughs) Well, keeping with the theme of big dinosaur finds from the summer, Thomas Carr and a team found fossils of T-Rex, Triceratops, and Edmontosaurus on a four-week expedition in the Badlands of Montana. Well then. Yeah, it was in the Hell Creek Formation. Apparently hundreds or maybe thousands of fossils have been found. That includes ankle and skull bones from a T-Rex and a five-foot-long triceratops skull that weighs two to 3,000 pounds. Some of the fossils might go on display at Kenosha's Dinosaur Discovery Museum once they're ready. Nice. Ankle and skull bones from a T-Rex. I'd be interested to see how much of the skull they found. Me too. That's like... Everybody loves finding a new T-Rex skull. When I first read the story, I thought, oh, did they find a T-Rex and Triceratops together? Oh, yeah. Were they fighting? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. Otherwise, I would have mentioned it. That's (laughs) probably true. (laughs) There was also a nearly complete juvenile hadrosaur with skin impressions found in Dinosaur Provincial Park in Canada. That one's about 76 million years old and estimated to be about 13 feet to 4 meters long. A lot of sandstone and silt covered the fossils, which helped preserve it so well, and the body was probably covered pretty quickly. So you can see some vertebrae, tendons, and some scales. They first found the fossils last summer, and then they excavated it this year. They might have to go back next year to finish excavating, They think there's a complete skeleton, but it's really hard to know at the moment based on what's exposed. So right now what was exposed is a large part of the tail and the right foot, but the way the tail and the foot are oriented, it makes it seem like there is a whole skeleton there. Mm, That's cool. Yeah. And eventually this specimen will go to the Royal Tyrol Museum. A lot of the hadrosaurs seem to be the ones that have skin impressions for some reason. I was thinking that, yeah. (laughs) Just something about the way they're preserved or something about us humans being able to find them. Yeah. (laughs) It's more noticeable, maybe. Yeah. The Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences also excavated three dinosaurs in Wyoming in the Morrison Formation. They had a Camarasaurus, a Dryosaurus, and possibly a Brachiosaurus. And the Camarasaurus, it's a juvenile. It's about 10 to 12 meters long. They nicknamed it Morris, probably from the Morrison formation. Mm-hmm. They're shipping them to Brussels to be prepared and studied and mounted. So lots of big finds this summer. Yeah. Yeah, those are some cool finds. And I'm sure there are more too. Those are just the ones that were told to the news. <laughs> yes, that's true. And then there were also a couple big dinosaur footprints that made it into the news. So one was a hundred million year old set of footprints found in a restaurant in Sichuan province, China. It was found, it's in the city of Lashan and it was in an outdoor courtyard in several stone pits. Hmm. There's footprints of two sauropods and a diner, somebody who was just eating at the restaurant spotted them. 
Oh, so it wasn't like they were building the restaurant. They've just been there for a long time. And then someone was eating and I was like, hey, that looks like a dinosaur footprint. Yes, which <laughs> is amazing. So before this was a restaurant, that area was a chicken farm. But then a year ago, the owner of the restaurant, they got rid of the dirt, but they decided to keep that area with the footprints. It was uneven stone because they liked the way it looked instead of leveling it with cement. And that protected the footprints. But I guess it took this one diner to notice. In fairness, sauropod footprints just look like a big hole in the ground. <laughs> true, true. They usually look like someone left a manhole cover open. Type thing. <laughs> They're so large, yeah. yeah. So Xing Lida and a team used a 3D scanner to confirm, yes, these are footprints, dinosaur footprints. And they're estimating that sauropod was about 26 feet or 8 meters long. And the owner of the restaurant now is thinking about building a shed to protect the footprints. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they stick like a piece of plexiglass over it or something like that too. Mm-hmm. Go to a restaurant, see some dinosaur tracks. Yeah. There were also 113 million-year-old dinosaur tracks that you could see in Texas briefly due to a severe drought. Huh. How'd that happen? Were they like on the bank of a lake or something? They're in a riverbed in Dinosaur Valley State Park. These tracks are usually covered in water and gravel and whatnot, but there's been months of dry weather. Hmm. The tracks were actually found many years ago. They mentioned in the story Paul Baker, who is the manager of the Dinosaur Valley store now, his father found them decades ago during another extreme drought. So they knew they were there, but it's only during drought years that you could see it. Maybe they'll take some photogrammetry pictures while they're exposed. Oh, maybe. I think. They might be covered again by now. I'm not sure. Oh, that's true. But they're acrocanthosaurus footprints, they think. Cool. You can see claw marks, too. All right, moving on. Both of these made a lot of headlines over the summer. It was the auctioning of a Deinonychus and a Gorgosaurus skeleton. The controversial selling of dinosaurs. Yes. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one was in May. The Deinonychus, nicknamed Hector, was auctioned off for $12.4 million. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, that used to be T-Rex money. Now it's Deinonychus money. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, headlines around this. And I think it's because Jurassic World Dominion was coming out too. So they were talking about, you know, raptors. Somebody impulse bought it because they had just seen a Jurassic movie. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it sold to an undisclosed buyer. Man, that is a lot of money. It's the most complete skeleton found so far of Deinonychus anteropus. Oh, that's a bummer. That the most complete one is now in an anonymous person's collection. Maybe we'll get lucky and they'll lend it to a museum. Well, sometimes the anonymous buyer is a museum. That's mm. happened before. Like what happened with, was that Stan that ended up being in the United Arab Emirates? I think it was, right? Yes. <laughs> so maybe this is going to show up in some oil-rich country or something. Maybe. Hopefully. Better than somebody's living room. You mean at a museum room. somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, may time will tell, maybe. So Hector, the Deinonychus, Hector's name for the Trojan warrior in the Iliad, was excavated in Montana about nine years ago on private land. It was bought and prepared by Jared Hudson and then... Somebody put it up for auction later, who owned it later, I guess, and they were anonymous. And 
when it was first going to auction, people were saying, oh, probably get four to six million dollars for it. <laughs> that still seems like a lot. But then it went for more than double that, 12.4 million. There's 126 real bones. And then the rest was reconstructed and 3D printed, mostly in the skull. Hector's about four feet or 1.2 meters tall and 10 feet or three meters long. And Hector was on display in Denmark for about a year. Oh, that's Sometime nice. before the auction, yeah. I don't, I doubt it got published on. I don't remember hearing anything about it. I don't either. So then the next big auction of the summer was a Gorgosaurus skeleton. That one went for about $6 million US dollars. Huh. You can get a Gorgosaurus for half the price of a Deinonychus? That seems weird. Is a lot less complete, maybe? I think so. There's 79 bone elements, it said. Oh, compared with over 100. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could fit a Deinonychus in your house easier, too. It's only 10 feet long oh. versus <laughs> Gorgosaurus or T-Rex. You know, you're getting into the 20, 30 feet. Right. You really need quite a space to show that thing off. That's true. Yeah, this Gorgosaurus is over 9 feet or 2.8 meters tall and 22 feet or 6.7 meters long. Yeah, there's literally nowhere in our house we could put that because we have eight-foot ceilings. So just what would you do? <laughs> I don't know if we could fit Hector even. <laughs> We've got, we could fit a four foot tall, 10 foot long thing in mm. several rooms. It would take up the whole room. It would take up a lot of the room, yeah. That would be like all the room is good for. That would be Hector's room yeah. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the Gorgosaurus. They thought it was going to sell for $8 million, but then it sold for a little over $6 million. It's also unknown who bought it, but whoever bought it gets to name it. Because the auction house, they did a poll on Twitter, and they said, whoever buys this can name the skeleton. And they gave some options like Greg the Gorgosaurus, Scary Sally, Fred the Ferocious, Gorgeous George. And Gorgeous George won. There were 85 votes total. So who knows? Maybe, maybe that Gorgosaurus will be known as Gorgeous George. Maybe. And... This Gorgosaurus was found back in 2018 on private land in Montana. Well, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, it is. So obviously, both of these sales were controversial, especially because they sold for so many millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got some scientists saying fossils should be in public repositories where they can be studied. But on the other side, there's people saying, well, there's a history of museums buying specimens and also you know, I guess, you know, being on private lands and everything, it can be expensive. So lots of controversy. It is very controversial. I definitely see both points on it. Because on the one hand, without commercial fossil collecting, less dinosaurs get discovered and less <laughs> some of the dinosaurs that are out there would erode away without being collected because there would be less people looking for them. That's just, since the way we find fossils is they're already sticking up out of the ground, if you don't collect them within a few years, a lot of times they start to deteriorate. But there are some people that say, we should just let those deteriorate mm. rather than have them go into private collections, because I hate private collections so much. Mm -hmm. But that's, I don't know, I think that's a little extreme. Well, to their point though, that once it's in private collections, there's no guarantee that people can access and study it. And then it's kind of like they've disappeared anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So I can see that. So it could go both ways. There are some private collectors though. There's a wide range of private collectors. Yes. And some of them do make quite an effort to catalog as much information as they can. Others don't. Yeah. So I feel like if anything, maybe the emphasis should be on 
encouraging people who are going to do private collecting to do it with some scientific rigor so that it has scientific value if it ends, ever ends up in a museum or if a museum can afford to buy it after mm-hmm. it's been collected. That's sort of where I'm at with it right now, but I don't know. It's controversial. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's something that I think will continue to be hashed out over many years. Yeah. Moving on to non-controversial news. (laughs) There were a lot of really awesome museum exhibits from the summer, but we're just going to talk about a few of them. Starting with the University of New Mexico opened a Natural History Science Center. They've got fossils from the region with over 40 type specimens. And the plan is to eventually make it a space for a federal repository for fossils. And they've got a prep lab, a collections room, and a space for collaboration and teaching. Cool. Yeah. And then in Portland, Oregon, there was a cartoon dinosaur (laughs) art exhibit, which is called Dinolandia. (laughs) It was in downtown Portland by artist Mike Bennett. There were more than 50 types of dinosaurs, and they had more than a thousand cutouts made from reclaimed plywood and recycled paint in a two-story museum. You can take a virtual tour. Actually, Garrett, you saw me take a little bit of that oh, virtual tour. Oh, that's what tour. that was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It kind of looked like if someone was making a mock-up of a dinosaur museum, and they were like, we're going to put this kind of dinosaur here, and just like sort of drew a cartoon of like <laughs> oh. you know there's gonna be a t-rex over here okay scribble a cartoon real quick and like stick it in there because they were very cartoony which i oh, guess yeah. is the point that yeah i think it would have been a lot of fun to walk through i didn't realize that there were a life-size version of them on plywood mm-hmm. that's cool i'm a little curious about what recycled paint is about Maybe that just means like leftover paint from other projects or Could something. Be. Yeah. Because I feel like once you use paint, it's not. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> Can you recycle it, peel it off the wall and stick it back on something? It could be leftover. Yeah. The Dinosaur Museum Altmuthal in Denkendorf, Germany, had a little owl on display. Which a is, little owl? Yeah, the world's youngest known allosaurus. They call him little owl. Hmm. It's about two years old. Oh, yeah, that is young. Yeah. Little Al was also on display with Rocky, a juvenile T-Rex, and Dracula, the pterosaur. got some fun names there. (laughs) Little Al is about 9.8 feet, 3 meters long, and 4.1 feet or 1 and a quarter meters tall. And Little Al was found in Wyoming next to a Diplodocus skeleton near a water hole. So there's a couple of theories there. They think maybe Little Al jumped into the hole and was attacked, or... It couldn't climb back up, and then it died in the water. Hmm. The museum has the skeleton of Little Owl on display, as well as a lifelike replica as part of their adventure trail. That's cool. Yeah. Juvenile dinosaurs are always really interesting to see. Yeah. Then there's the Royal Tyrrell Museum. They launched the exhibit Perspectives on the Art of Glenn McIntosh. And Glenn is an artist who worked on the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies And if Glenn's name sounds familiar, we did a live stream with him showcasing his Jurassic Park collection back in April, and we interviewed him most recently about his work in episode 393. So this exhibit has a lot of his paleo art of a lot of North American dinosaurs, including Borealopelta. Oh, I love Borealopelta. Yeah. And they have it at that museum. They do. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really like Glenn's paleo art. 
Then there's the Hong Kong Science Museum that opened the Hong Kong Jockey Club Series The Big Eight Dinosaur Revelation <laughs> exhibit. Jeez, that's quite a title. Yeah, this one made a lot of news too because, well, they had Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, Allosaurus, Hesperosaurus, Diplodocus, Hatsagopteryx, and a baby sauropod, but they also had a Spinosaurus. That is a lot of large skeletons to put together. Yeah, it took them a long time. And some of them have nicknames too. So Spinosaurus, as I mentioned, is Mr. Big. The Triceratops is also known as Willard. And they think it might be a new species of Triceratops. Oh, cool. So that Triceratops at least is a real fossil, not a recreation, if they think it might be a new species. Could be, yeah. Spinosaurus probably isn't. That's probably a reconstruction because there aren't a lot of Spinosaurus remains to go around. <laughs> And the Hesperosaurus is also known as Victoria, and that one was found with preserved skin. So the pictures are really cool of all these skeletons or these reconstructions. Cool. And then last in our news, there's a new public science project, Cretaceous Creatures, that lets eighth graders do real science with real fossils. Hmm. So it's for eighth grade science teachers and students, quote, across North Carolina and beyond, end quote. <laughs> What's beyond? Virginia? I, I'm thinking it could be anyone, maybe, because there's online lessons. And then if you're doing it, you get access to these microfossils to identify. And then you'll send the data back to the North Carolina Museum of Natural Science for paleontologists to enter into their database. Uh, okay, yeah. So anywhere with an internet connection is yeah. the beyond. And that you can deliver these microfossils to. Hmm. So the sediment comes from the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. And yeah, if you do it, there's lesson plans, online, interactive models, in addition to that fossil material. Nice. It's always exciting the first time you get to touch a real fossil. Mm -hmm. And for most of those eighth graders, that would probably be that first time. Yeah. And we're going to get into our dinosaur of the day, Magnosaurus, in just a moment. But first, let's pause for one more sponsor break. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Magnosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon Discord. So thanks. Magnosaurus was a megalosaurid, megalosauroid theropod <laughs> that lived in the Middle Jurassic and what is now England in the inferior oolite group. It looked like other theropods. It walked on two legs. It had a long snout with sharp teeth. It had a long tail. It's considered to be small-bodied. Gregory Paul estimated it to be about 13.1 feet or 4 meters long and weigh 386 pounds or 175 kilograms. But Roger Benson estimated the hip to be just over 3.3 feet or 1 meters tall and said that Magnosaurus was probably similar in body mass to Nitskisaurus, which is estimated to be around 900 pounds or 450 kilograms. But this couldn't be confirmed because the weight-bearing 
limb bones of Magnosaurus were too poorly preserved for comparison. So relatively small for a theropod, but not as small as like a Deinonychus or something. Yeah. Now, only fragments of Magnosaurus have been found. And in the past, Magnosaurus had actually been included with Megalosaurus, which isn't too surprising. It's <laughs> a wastebasket taxon, or Megalosaurus was a wastebasket taxon, meaning a lot of different dinosaurs were thought to be Megalosaurus mm -hmm. at one point. If it's a theropod that was discovered over 100 years ago, there's a good chance that it was called Megalosaurus at some point. Yeah. And now Friedrich von Huhn in 1923, named Megalosaurus nethercomensis, based on a partial skeleton, so partial lower jaws, vertebrae, part of the pubis and leg bones, from possibly a juvenile. There were also some broken adult teeth and emerging teeth found in the lower jaws. Then Hugh named Megalosaurus lidecari, based on a tooth, and he named that in 1926, and it was based on a tooth that Richard Lidecker had described in 1888. Naming things based on teeth. Yes. Always a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but then in 1932, Von Huhn renamed Megalosaurus nethercomensis to Magnosaurus nethercomensis and referred Megalosaurus lidecari to it as Magnosaurus lidecari. He also named a third species, Magnosaurus woodwardi, based on a tibia, but he accidentally named both Magnosaurus woodwardi and Sarcosaurus andrusi, based on the same bone in the same <sighs> 1932 paper. <laughs> it's like he had a rough draft with one name and then realized, oh, wait, no, I should assign it to this existing genus, but forgot to like reread it. Yeah, something, there was an error there. This is before we had, you know, the ability to search and the find and replace feature in Word. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Well, in 1956, the name Sarcosaurus andrusi stuck for that particular tibia, and Hewn referred it all to Sarcosaurus. And also Magnosaurus woodward eye slash Sarcosaurus andrusi, they had, there was a lot of differences in how the bones look compared to Magnosaurus nethercomensis, and those two species also lived at least 20 million years apart. Ah, I see. So now the type and only species for Magnosaurus is Magnosaurus nethercomensis. Woodward eye is now Sarcosaurus, but not even Woodward eye. You said it's Andrew's eye. Yeah. <laughs> and Megalosaurus lidecari is now considered to be a nomum dubium, a doubtful name. Yeah. Is that the one named on the tooth? Yes. Yeah. As it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so the genus name Magnosaurus means large lizard. It wasn't even that large of a lizard. Didn't you say it was like 12 feet long? <laughs> Or large of a dinosaur. I guess it'd be large for a lizard. Yeah. <laughs> it is a large lizard. <laughs> Except it's not a lizard. Now, until the 1990s, Magnosaurus was thought to basically be a Megalosaurus species. Again, that wastebasket taxon. But there's some differences in the bones, like in the tibiae, the lower leg bone. In 2003, Oliver Raut suggested Magnosaurus and Eustreptospondylus were the same because the lower jaws were similar, and he renamed Eustreptospondylus oxoniensis as Magnosaurus oxoniensis, but not everyone agrees. So again, there's just the type species Magnosaurus nethercomensis. In 2010, Roger Benson found Magnosaurus to be a valid dinosaur based on foramina, a hole in the lower jaw, the dentary. 
Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Magnosaurus include, of course, Megalosaurus and Duryavenador, which is another theropod that for a while was thought to be Megalosaurus. And to wrap up this episode, I've got a fun fact. So in past episodes, we have talked about herbivorous or omnivorous theropods, which sound kind of strange when you think about it. Usually we think about theropods as carnivorous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got Spinosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, all those kinds of dinosaurs. All the big names. But just as that sounds weird, there are some modern, mostly herbivorous animals that have been found eating meat. Oh, you got more examples of these situations? Like that deer eating <laughs> animals that I I found one time or like cows? Yes. <laughs> So I'll start with rainbow lorikeets, which are medium-sized parrots. They usually eat nectar and fruits. But in 2015, there was a bird watcher near Brisbane, Australia, that noticed lorikeets eating meat. They were putting out food for carnivorous and herbivorous birds. They had mints for magpies and kookaburras and seed for parrots and lorikeets. But they noticed that the lorikeets started with the seed and then started chasing other birds away from the meat. Hmm. And one scientist started studying the meat-eating lorikeets and heard from hundreds of people who had seen lorikeets eating meat. (laughs) And some people have been noticing this for like 20 years. That's interesting, like parrots eating meat. Yeah. But they're not eating it in a predatory way. It's when they're in like a bird feeder sort of situation. So it's possible that this meat is more of a snack for them and they don't eat meat all the time, but it's unclear why they go for this meat. Yeah. Their beaks aren't particularly well adapted to predatory behavior. Yeah. But I guess as one of those things, like we talk about how there's no real carnivores that are just predators versus scavengers. Like, why are they going to pass up a good meal? There's meat there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why not snack? I also didn't realize that people put out meat for birds. I didn't either. I thought it was always like seeds or nectar. I didn't realize put out meat. It's weird. I guess it depends on the kind of birds you're trying to attract. Yeah, I guess so. Hopefully they eat it soon because i can't imagine meat sitting out in the brisbane sun lasting too long my guess is it goes quickly if the birds are fighting over it that's true (laughs) there's also cows that have been seen eating chickens yeah there's one video of a cow eating a baby chicken alive yeah that happens there's also a report of a cow in india named lol that ate 48 chickens in one month whoa (laughs) It's becoming like a specialist chicken carnivore at that point. Yeah, it could be that the cows have some sort of mineral deficiency, and that's why they go for the chickens. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That was that hypothesis with the hadrosaur eating some sort of invertebrate, and I think it had shells, and they thought, oh, it's eating those because it needs to get that calcium. Yeah. And then the last one I've got here is uh, sheep on the Orkney Island of North Ronaldsay have been seen eating migratory birds. They seem to like the legs and the beaks the most. Hmm. And that could be another example of some, you know, they need extra nutrition or maybe the birds were in the way of the sheep eating their main food, which is seaweed. (laughs) So there's a lot of theories there. That's more surprising to me because I could see like cows and chickens, you figure they're both raised domestically. They could be in the same sort of area on a farm setting and then maybe a cow occasionally can get a chicken. Chickens aren't the most fast or, you know, they can't fly all that well necessarily. 
but migrating birds you'd think could get away from a sheep <laughs> it doesn't seem if they're like... not suspecting it maybe. oh that's true yeah that's very true yeah they don't think a sheep is going to try to eat them and in most cases a sheep wouldn't yeah <laughs> and if they're migratory yeah they're not maybe they're used to sheep from other parts that wouldn't go after them that's true that reminds me of that video of a pelican trying to eat a really big mammal. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like a beaver or something. It's just sitting there and it's getting chewed on <laughs> by a pelican. But the the thing is so big that it's like, whatever, you're not going to be able to eat me. I think maybe these migratory birds were thinking the same thing. Like, well, you're not going to eat me. I don't care. Right. And then. Little did they know. The last mistake they ever made. Maybe they're eating too much of the seaweed. It's true. <laughs> Getting caught up in their seaweed eating. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. <laughs> On a high note. <laughs> That's how we come back after yeah. a long break. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend. You can also, of course... Read our show notes and get links to our sources from this episode on our website, iknowdino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.